Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the web-only sports show from RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. This week we hear from one of the Black Caps' key players ahead of the World T20 in India. A cricketing great remembers Martin Crowe. We discuss the fallout from the Maria Sharapova failed drugs test. And we hear from rowing great Mahi Drysdale and Ironman legend Cameron Brown. The New Zealand cricket team begins life without Brendan McCullum at this month's World T20 Tournament in India. McCullum retired from international play after the Test Series against Australia with Kane Williamson now the man in charge. The Auckland batsman Colin Munro is expected to play a key part in the team as a limited overs specialist. Sports editor Stephen Hewson asked him about the adjustment needed for the local conditions. There's no pace to you, so it's obviously about being efficient on, on getting off strikes and so finding your ones and, and rotating the strike and then... You've really got to be patient for that ball to be in your area to to go to go for the big shot for the boundary. So, uh, yeah, it is uh, probably harder to hit the boundaries on those slower lower wickets. But some people have done it in the past, and hopefully, some of us can uh, get a few out the middle. Boundaries are they much bigger or similar size to New Zealand? Um, I say a little bit bigger. Um, I'm not too sure. I haven't really looked into it too much. Um, one kitty where we're training now is is probably a little bit bigger. So. Um, yeah, I don't think the boundary size has come into it. It's obviously the same for, for both teams. And, uh, you know, if there's a big boundary, there, there'll be a lot of twos and threes. So, you know, we can accumulate runs in that way. That would possibly be an advantage the New Zealanders have got over India for that first game? Yes and no. I don't, I, you, you look at that Indian team now and, you know, they, they're very athletic and the way they go about things and they're really good in the field as well. So, you know, I think gone are the days where India have been sort of, you know, even in the park as, as fielding teams... You could put them under pressure. I think I think they're a very good building unit now, and, and I think uh, pretty good athletes as well. So I don't think we can probably count ourselves probably better athletes than them. That's for sure. An advantage, do you think, getting India first up uh, when I suppose everyone might be adjusting to the tournament, or or, or not? Well, yeah, I've been asked that question a couple of times about the pool as well, and are we in the harder pool or not? So you know, I think obviously when you come to uh, a World Cup and you've got the 10 best teams in the world, you've got to be playing your best cricket even from the start. So, um, yeah, it's nice. It's good, you know, to play the, the host in the own conditions and, and probably sprinter-friendly conditions. So if we can get a win um, against them first up, it, it, it builds our confidence nicely uh, leading into the rest of the tournament. What about getting used to or, or playing in front of crowds like, like you get in India? I mean, how much of a effect is that going to be? Because presumably it's going to be pretty loud, pretty overwhelming, uh, especially when you're playing the hosts. Yeah, we know it's going to be loud. It's, it's going to be a little bit off-putting, but you know, as long as we, in the, when we're in the field in the park, um, stay stay focused on, on watching Kane for those subtle changes, and you know, as long as we we stay on on the ball in, in terms of that, and uh, with batting and bowling, it's it's pretty much just trying to come back to our plan and, and try and execute our plans as well as we can, and. 
and try and take, even though it sometimes is hard with the with the crowd and stuff, try and take that out of it. Form wise, you'd obviously be pretty pretty confident, given you've had uh, that 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 fifty. Is your role to, I suppose, try and fill fill the gap that Brendan McCullum's left? I haven't been told that I've got to fill the gap. Obviously, you can't fill the gap that he's you know he's a great player. So you know, all I can do is come in and play my natural game, and whether that's hitting the ball for flicks or, or generating a strike at the top of the order, then then that's it. There's going to be times where it doesn't come off, and I'm going to um, not be too sort of hard on myself. But uh, yeah, obviously, it's nice to have scored those runs in, in New Zealand. But obviously, now we've like how we've spoken here different conditions, uh, got to respect the conditions, respect the opposition and, and just uh, bring it back to playing each ball as well as I can and not, and not premeditating and getting too far ahead of myself. Well I suppose the other thing too is T- T20 so fickle isn't it, There's such a, there is an element of luck involved. Yeah, I think 2020 is huge luck involved. You could hit the ball out of the middle and still get caught on the fence or you know somebody could you know, catch you on the ring or, or something like that so yeah, there's so many sort of little little variables as well. You've got to come into it. You know, you could play really good innings and, and hit the ball to the field the whole time. And then on the other hand, you, you might, you know, miss hit it, goes over the ring, you get two, and you do that a couple of times, then you're underway. So it is so fickle that you can't really get too down or, or too up in terms of your, your performance. As soon as, you, as soon as you go up and down, then, you know, you're not going to create that consistency that we're after. How much experience have you got of playing in India? Um, I played a couple um, A tours as well in India, but not too much in, in 2020 stars. It's more the four day and the one days when we, we played. And uh, obviously, I had RPL experience last year. Playing, for, uh, I didn't play for Mumbai, but uh, obviously training and stuff on, on these wickets. It's uh, football in good stead, and, and I know sort of what to expect. And it's just about trying to um, prepare well and, and formulate a plan um, against different opposition on different surfaces as well. That's Colin Munro talking with Stephen Hewson. Meanwhile, in New Zealand cricket great Martin Crowe was farewelled this week. Crowe died a week ago at the age of 53 after a long battle with cancer. His funeral was on Friday. The English legend Sir Ian Botham is in the country and he played with and against Martin Crowe. Checkpoint's John Campbell spoke to Botham and asked him what he remembers most about Crowe. I have many fond memories of Martin Crowe. Um, from the moment he arrived at uh, Somerset, as uh, a young lad, I think he was 19, 20 years of age, uh, he came over as a replacement for Viv, who was with the West Indies on tour. Uh, no one knew a great deal about Martin Crowe at that stage, but uh, a few months later they certainly knew plenty in the Somerset area and over England. Uh, terrific talent. Um, I remember him arriving at uh, Taunton. I said to him, look, you're struggling for some accommodation at the moment. Come and stay with me. I've got a bunk, nice little bungalow tucked away in a cul-de-sac that Viv and I use, Viv's away, come and share it until you get yourself sorted, which seemed uh, a very good idea. And then about uh, uh, a week or so later, he receives a letter from his mum from New Zealand. Are you sure you should be staying there with him? (laughs) Which I thought was... uh, He never lived that... He never actually lived that down in the dressing room. He got a lot of stick about that for a long time. (laughs) So so, so was his mum a bit worried about your undue influence? Uh, well, apparently, um, but uh, it was, uh, it, as I say, it, it lived a long time, that story in the dressing room. Probably still lives there now. Sir Ian, he worked really hard, didn't he? Because he found cricket easier than life, I think, particularly as a young man. Is, is that true? Well, look, he, he's an extremely talented player. 
Uh, I, I, for one, don't think New Zealand used him enough uh, in the cricketing circles. Um, I think he could have uh, added a lot more to the game, not just as a player, but I'm talking about after the game, he, he, after he'd finished as a player. Um, he loved the game of cricket. He thought the, thought the game of the cricket 24 hours a day. He was the guy, of course, who came up with, everyone thinks that uh, T20 is new. Uh, that's, I'm afraid, is baloney. I was playing it as a 14-year-old in the Somerset Leagues, and Martin Crowe then took, if you remember, Cricket Max, which was 10 overs, 10 overs, 10 overs, 10 overs. Uh, so um, four innings of a 20-over game. Uh, he was way ahead of his time. Um, sadly, I don't think it was used enough, as I say, by New Zealand. But when he came to Somerset... He actually uh, took a lot of the younger players under his wing. They, joined, they formed a club because he said, I'm here for the first time. You're all here as juniors. We'll have our own club. And they used to meet whenever, once a week, once every two weeks or three weeks at a little pub just outside the town. And they'd go there and they'd all have a team uh, dinner and uh, whatever. And uh, he bonded really well with the guys. And uh, they, people in Somerset have just fond memories of Martin Crowe. Can you describe him as a batsman? Uh, I think one of the biggest compliments I can play to it, uh, pay him and, uh, and to say publicly without any hesitation whatsoever is that I think he's as elegant as Greg Chappell. He used his height, he stood up, uh, he played the ball, and many would argue he was better than uh, Greg Chappell. That's for the purists of the game to debate and argue. Greg Chappell played on a very good side. Martin Crowe played on a side where he had to dominate and uh, make his, as did Richard Hadley, had to make his presence uh, known and maybe had to do the job of two or three men. So it's something that you can, I'm sure people will argue about uh, in the bar over a bottle of wine or a couple of beers, who was the better, Chapel or um, Crow? It's a pretty good debate, though, isn't it? And it's nice to be involved in it. And Martin Crow richly is in the mix. Did you keep in touch with him? Had you seen him in the last year or so? Well, I've been down to New Zealand a lot recently over the years. Uh, I'm down here again for the New Zealand Open. Look, uh, I've been in and out a lot with England, with uh, the golf and my fishing, my big passion of fishing. And I always usually, you nearly always meet up with Hogan whether it was in, uh, of course, later days, more often than not in Auckland, because he was limited in his travel, he got tired. Uh, but, uh, no, we had uh, dinner only, what, I don't know, a few months ago, six, seven months ago, uh, at his favourite little Italian round the corner. My wife, Kath, was over, and we all sat there, and he was very, very philosophical about it all. Uh, he just uh, fronted up and said, look, you know, this is the situation. I, I've given chemotherapy the flick. I don't think it's doing any good. He went on to natural uh, herbal remedies, and uh, at one stage it looked as if he was winning, but these things have a case of coming back. Uh, and it, and uh, even though we all knew he was battling, when he finally passed away, it still comes as a shock. Serene Botham talking to John Campbell, and this is Extra Time. Tennis star Maria Sharapova dropped a bombshell this week when she revealed she had tested positive for a banned substance at this year's Australian Open. The former world number one tested positive for meldonium, a drug she says she has been taking for the past 10 years for medical reasons from her family doctor. Meldonium was added to WADA's prohibited list on January 1st. Several of Sharapova's sponsors have severed ties with the world's highest paid female athlete. It also emerged later in the week that Sharapova had been warned about the Meldonium ban no less than five times before the start of the year. Former CEO of Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority and former boss of the ATP Anti-Doping Programme is Richard Ings. Moldonium is a drug that has been put on the banned list from the 1st of January 2016. 
it was being monitored in 2015 and deemed to be performance enhancing and also too widely used by athletes. So Ms. Sharapova has tested positive for a, a serious performance enhancing drug and the consequences can be a two to four year ban. A serious performance enhancing drug that wasn't previously on the banned list? Yeah, well, the, the, the wider prohibited list is updated every January. I mean, new drugs come on the market. Drugs that were not thought to be performance enhancing uh, end up being shown to have performance enhancing properties. So changes are an annual event. And this particular drug is a prescription pharmaceutical for treating various medical conditions that can also be abused by athletes for performance enhancing benefits. So, Richard, would you expect in normal circumstances she would have become aware of the fact this was now prohibited and have stopped using it? Well, of course, I used to work for the, the Men's Pro Tour, the ATP, in the role of informing players of, of just these sort of changes. And, and tennis is a sport that is very proactive in getting the word out to all the players. And indeed, at the Australian Open, there would have been a general player meeting where these sorts of changes would have been communicated to all the players who are participating. So what does that lead you to conclude? Either people have been careless or reckless or something more cynical than that? Well, look, we don't know all the facts, but what we do know is that Ms. Sharapova gave a very credible press conference today. She accepted responsibility. She waived her right to a B sample. She explained her situation. Her situation does sound credible, but at the end of the day, the, the player and the athletes have a responsibility not to play with a performance-enhancing substance in their body, and that's exactly what she did. One final question, because I know that you are highly sought after today by media organisations from throughout the world. Does this mean we have to reassess? She's a five-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one. Do we have to look at her tennis career differently now? No, look, I, I, I don't think you do. I, I, I think if you go back and look at her press conference today, it, it really painted a very clear picture of uh, someone who has been taking a particular pharmaceutical for a number of years and perfectly allowed to do so. There was a major change in the list. She does have a responsibility to be aware of those changes. She has a responsibility not to use that drug from 1 January, but she did, and there will be a consequence, probably a significant consequence. She must pay. That's Richard Ings talking to John Campbell. This week, Team Wellington picked up their first Premiership football title with an extra-time win over Auckland City, who have dominated the national competition in recent years. The result means the Wellington club secured qualification for the Oceania Champions League and closed the door on Auckland City's three-peat bid, as well as their record 28-game unbeaten domestic run. I spoke to Team Wellington chairman Peter Choate after the game and asked him about what this means for the competition. I think it does wonders for the competition, to be frank. I mean, at the end of the day, it's been it's been an Auckland-dominated competition for well since its instigation. I think it's great that a, the franchises outside, you know, can can see a pathway to winning. You know, um, of course, the big prize is always in the O League. Um, you know, so to you know to get to a World Club Championships like like Auckland City have done over a number of years really is a game changer for franchises. So, at, at the end of the day, that's what we're all chasing. So I, I think it, it just does show that you know the, the competition isn't as uh, once as lopsided as uh, some people believe. And now that you've sort of got that step into Oceania, uh, one would assume that Team Wellington Wellington can sort of hold on to its uh, strength and that sort of thing. It's a it's a good prospect, and you know one would hope you'd you'd have uh, success there. 
Yeah, well, we made the final last year, and once again, we lost on penalties to Auckland City, didn't we? You know, that, you know one one penalty kick difference, and uh, you know, and that's the difference from heading to Japan to play to play with the really big boys. So, I think something that's worth a mention about Team Wellington this year is we, we've also won the Youth League, which is which is terrific. So, we've we've won the Youth League, and now we've won the ASB Premiership. So, the franchise is uh, you know is on the field is performing very well. We, we, we're absolutely delighted. As a long-time Wellingtonian, that must be uh, quite satisfying because it's it's been a long time between drinks. Yeah, it has. I don't think well, we've we've not won any we've not won any national competitions for quite for quite some some time. We have we've won Chatham Cups, you know, with with, the, with some of our local clubs, which is which is good. But I guess you know, apart from the, apart from the big show, of course, which is the Phoenix. Uh, Team Wellington is is the showcase for our, for the best of our amateur footballers and. Um, we're very good to see that we've got some good young amateurs coming through, and we've got some. Uh, the majority of the um, of the Team Wellington squad is actually from the Central League, so we've also got some good local players coming through. Are you satisfied with the, what is the National League? I mean, because for many years there, it seemed to the model for a lot of people really didn't seem to work. It's a, it's a difficult model. I mean, you know, we've got a we've got a fairly small, you know, supporter base, and it's uh, you know, it's, it's expensive to run a national league. But I think I think this year, I think New Zealand football have made some inroads. The poor, you know, the poor guys have been under the pump up there a bit. But you know, they've made some um, some really good inroads this year. To have uh, to have national television is helpful. Um, you know, it gives us it gives us some visibility and some ac- some access to sponsors. Um, so you know, baby steps, but you know, it's it's, it's definitely on the improve. And the Phoenix being involved is that good? Uh, is it good? Um, no, I think it is for the Phoenix. It's really important that the Phoenix have a you know have a competition for their fringe players and their developing players to play in. You know, I have personal views. I guess that I don't think it's great for a. Um, you know, for a developing team to be, you know, on the end of too many hidings of the season, but you know they've they've brought through some really good play, good players through that uh, through that Phoenix um, ASB Premiership team, and and there's you know there's a couple of pros that have been signed out of it. Um, so I mean we, we just we just really have to work with the Phoenix. The Phoenix is very very important, obviously, for Wellington football um, and national football. So we have to work with the Phoenix. It's just. Uh, I think it's just a fact of life. There's nowhere else for them to, you know, to play their reserve team and their and their uh, developing players. Uh, and the the uh, Premiership, of course, is expanding next season. Uh, that's good. The, you know, they can cope. Do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it can cope. I think it's. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very short season if you don't uh, if you don't make finals and you don't make the O League. It's an awful lot of. Um, Time and effort for two very short rounds at the moment. So expanding is is good in terms of it, it stretches the season a little bit more. It'll be interesting to see the strength of the franchises. I think uh, I think the Auckland, the Eastern Suburbs franchise will be fairly strong. I mean they've got a decent population of players. Um, South Island might be challenging. I, you know I, I wish Nelson all the best, with, with Tasman all the best, and uh, but it might be challenging in terms of where they might pull their. Player base from, but they'll be in, they'll be well into planning phase now. So you know it'll be good to see some fresh, some fresh franchises and fresh faces in the comp, I guess. That's Peter Choke from Team Wellington. This is extra time. New Zealand will have its biggest ever rowing team at an Olympic come the Rio Games in August. 
Last week, 31 rowers were selected to contest nine classes, while an additional team of 15 athletes made up of five boats has also been named to compete at the final Olympics qualification regatta in Lucerne in May. The reigning Olympic champions, single sculler Mahi Drysdale, along with the men's pair of Hamish Bond and Eric Murray, head the team. Drysdale told sports editor Stephen Hewson that despite heading into his fourth Olympics, there was still a sense of relief when the team was announced. In every Olympic cycle, you've got to get through this, this hurdle, and um, you know, it's a, a, a quite a big relief, I guess, uh, to be named in the team again, um, just because you know that that's the stepping stone uh, for, for you to go on and achieve your goals. Really a relief, Mahi? I mean, you were always going to be there, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, but it's always it's always there, and um, you know it's one of those one of those things that you have to tick off. Um, you know, and, and and okay, this year I wasn't challenged, but you never take that for granted. Um, we've got a lot of um, you know very talented athletes in this program, and um, you know over summer I, I was beaten in the single um, by both Robbie and John. So you know you you certainly um, you know you've got to be in good shape, but um, you know it's it's something that you're always looking ahead to Rio, but. Uh, you never take your spot for granted in this program. Did that make you a little bit more nervous, or just give you a bit of a reminder that those couple of losses? It's great, right? I guess it's great to be having that that world class racing. I guess it, it didn't make me nervous in in the fact that you know I was, I was pretty certain that the other guys um, were were quite happy in in their situations, um, and you know I had to put it into context in the fact that you know I guess I was you know the the race, especially against John, where I was, I was beaten. Um, you know, I I knew that that I was going really well, um, and he you know he had an exceptional race. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that, as I said, I've always got that eye on Rio. So, I'm certainly not in the shape of my life um, at this time of year, and and I don't really want to be. Um, you know, I'm I'm in very good training form, but but not racing form. So, you know, it's 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 something that you're certainly aware of, and and I was very pleased to get the win at the national champs. Um, you know, just to to prove that, that, you know, when it does count, I, I can still pull out a good race, um, even if I'm not quite 100% ready for, for racing. Now, on a wider context, the, the biggest ever New Zealand rowing team to go to an Olympics, that must be uh, very pleasing too. Yeah, no, it's it's very exciting. And, um, you know, the, the talent within this team is, is phenomenal. Um, you know, out of the, the, the team that's already qualified, you know, we've got nine boats and, and seven of those boats medalled at the World Champs last year. So... You know, it's a very, very exciting um, time to be involved in the sport. You know, I've I've been here since Athens, and we've had 11 athletes, and um, you know, we've we've now got 32 confirmed, and we're we're sending another five boats to to go and try to qualify. So, you know, it's it's uh, incredibly exciting times, and and you know, I guess being here for the whole time, I'm I'm very, very proud of of all the youngsters, and um, you know, just seeing how the the standards keep going, and I'm uh, very confident that. Um, you know this team is, is going to perform incredibly well in uh, in Rio. Do things feel a little more settled now too? I mean, there was obviously the Dick Tonk saga. The, the team's now been named. Does normality possibly feel like it's returning? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, it's been, it's been great from the day that we started back with Dick, um, just to have that that normality. But to now have the team named, you know, I think we can all just just take a little, um, you know, deep breath. Take a step back, and and you know we're now 100% focused on Rio. Um, before we we always had that um, you know little step uh, in the back of our minds that we had to overcome. So you know obviously the women's double was was named as well by my training partners, and um, you know really looking forward to, you know just getting back into the 
the winter training and um, yeah, back to normality for sure. Did you and Dick have to go through a bit of a readjustment process? Um, not at all. It was, it was um, yeah, quite scary actually. Um, just just sort of showing up the first day, you, you know, it was a little bit of, you know, how's how's this going to play out? And um, you know, we we literally rode up both the woman's double and I, and it was uh, you know Dick's usual uh, into the megaphone. All right, 20k, and uh, you're sort of like, all right, it's back to normal, and uh, and off you go. So, yeah, no, there wasn't wasn't uh, any readjusting at all. Um, you know, I think he, uh, you know, just just really started off where where we'd left off. Um, you know, and and you know, it's been been great since. Now, you've already had a chance to head over and look at the Rio venue, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yeah. Do you get to go back between now and and competition time? No, we we won't see it. Um, so the woman's double and I with Dick will we'll be the first into the village. Um, we arrive the day the, the village opens, about 5am. So you know, we'll have a couple of weeks on the course um, you know, before the, the Olympics start and um, you know, that will be our only, only time we, we see the course before racing. Now that you've got such a big rowing squad, does that give you any more privileges in the village? Do you sort of get to, as a sport over other sports, do you get to maybe throw you a bit of weight around numbers-wise? Um, not really, I guess. Um, yeah, it it, uh, it doesn't doesn't really uh, do much for us. But but obviously, I think um, you know we we have our own systems, and um, you know we're going to have a day house in in uh, Rio, where which will be right near the course, and you know that's just rowing venue um, where we'll just hang out during the day, and you know that's that's a really nice opportunity. And I guess um, you know now we've got a big squad we're able to, to have those sort of things. Um, and it just, just brings a little bit more, more normality to the, the uh, regatta. Um, that means that we'll only, only have to travel from the village to the rowing venue once a day, which uh, you know, is, is certainly an advantage and um, you know, one of the, 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 probably the best things about having a, a bigger team. Although I guess uh, you go back to Athens and you know, all of us lived in one house. Um, because it was such a small team, so um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's certainly a little bit different and dif- different scales, but um, doesn't give us uh, any extra real privileges. But you know, we're certainly looking forward to um, hopefully being the uh, the top sport in in Rio. It's Robert Mahi Drysdale. This is extra time. After round one of the National Rugby League competition, there has been plenty of criticism of the New Zealand Warriors following their 34-26 loss to the West's Tigers. Graham Lowe, a former Kiwis and Queensland State of Origin coach, was the most vocal in his criticism, suggesting the team has a bro culture. The Warriors coach, Andrew McFadden, was quick to shut down such suggestions. But our sports reporter, Matt Chatterton, caught up with newcomer to the club, Blake Ashford, who spent time with the Cronulla Shark and West Tigers, to get his take on Lowe's comments. We made it a lot harder on ourselves than it should have been and we were still in, in the fight at the end when we shouldn't have been. Um, but, you know, we've, we got told, you know, keep our heads up because we can't dwell on it too much. You know, we looked at the video on Saturday, oh, sorry, on Sunday, um, and we've got to go again Friday. So we've got less than a week turnaround. So, you know, we can't be hanging our heads down all week. What was the, sort of the assessment, I suppose, on, on Sunday? Uh, did Justin have many words for you on the terms of defence? Because obviously defence is something that the Warriors have sort of notoriously been sort of bad for, I guess, over the past few seasons. Well, he, he just showed the things that we did wrong in the first half and then he showed the second half because the second half, not many people know, we, we made a lot more errors in the second half than we did in the first. The only difference was we defended them. 
So, um, you know, he pointed that out. Like, he goes, it's in us. We can do it. It's just about, you know, getting the right mindset. And, you know, after they go kick up the backside at half-time, um, you know, we, we did it in the second half. But they shouldn't have to do that for us to go out in the first half and defend like we did. Is there anything you can put the first half down to? Was it sort of, I suppose, a bit of nerves at the start of the season? Or what was it exactly? I'm not too sure, really. I think um, we got a bit ambushed. Uh, by the Tigers, you know, we I think we started started all right the first five, and then after after that, you know, we gave a penalty away and dropped ball and a couple more penalties, and they they just went on a roll, and and we were on the back foot. Um, I'm not too sure what to what to put it down to, but um, you know, attitude would be one of them. Um, I think we got to go in with the right attitude this week, and um, you know, we probably thought we were prepared, but yeah, it showed that we weren't. You mentioned the word attitude. Um, I'm sure you've already been asked this, but there's always comments around, or there's comments that came out earlier this week that um, there's this so-called bro culture within the uh, within the Warriors that they're quite relaxed in uh, in the atmosphere and the team atmosphere. Coming from the Sharks and the Tigers, have you noticed? A, is there a difference at all in the culture here compared to over in Australia? Um, no, it's a, it's a lot more family orientated, but there's no there's no easy way in in our role like there's no club would take it easy on anyone that's why the people that are saying this I can't see them in any of our video sessions I don't see them in any of our training sessions so for them to say it mate it's, they're, they're just guessing you know um, I can't speak highly enough of how this club's um, treated me and my family so far and how how tight-knit the boys are here and you know we, if they think it's that bro culture that they're talking about they should come and sit in on a Saturday on, on the Sunday morning after that loss and see how light we get it if that's what they think yeah. um, Also I suppose uh, there were a lot of expectations on the club you know with all these big signings including yourself coming over here was it possibly that the expectations put a lot of pressure on you guys in round one and it got the better of you or anything like that maybe? I don't, I don't think so mate I think we'll prepare for that um, you know being the only team in this country I think you've got to be prepared to even if we didn't have the big signings there'd still be a lot of pressure on who, who was playing um, but I think all the boys are prepared, and um, in that sense, you know, um, that they're prepared. That you know, we had all that talk about everyone because you could see in the Dragons game we took it a bit light, and that's what happened. Um, but no, I don't think so. I don't think that was the case. Warrior Centre Blake Ashford talking to Matt Chatterton. The Auckland triathlete Cameron Brown is a legend in his sport. The 43-year-old won his 12th New Zealand Ironman title in Taupo last week. Brown extended his own world record as the oldest winner of any Ironman race and also became the first professional man to win the same Ironman race on 12 occasions. Well, it's a 3.8 kilometre swim, 180 k's on the bike and then a marathon, 42.2 k's to finish off the day. So, uh, yeah, a tough, tough, hard day for uh, Brutal. professionals, but for age groupers as well. And so what, what, did you, what was your time? Uh, eight hours, seven minutes and 57 seconds. So, yeah, did a course record. So great to, great to get that back. And, uh, but, yeah, the conditions down there were just perfect for fast racing. So you did a course record at what age? Uh, 43. So I'm a couple of months shy of my 44th. So, you know, that, that just puts the icing on the cake, really, to, to do it at that, um, you know, at this age. I, I mean, I didn't even think... Probably ten years ago, that'd be still competing at this uh, at this point. So, um, well, ten years ago, you were winning, right? Because this is your twelfth yep, victory, yep. isn't it? So, yep. a de- so 
a decade ago, whilst it was inconceivable, you'd already started winning. But in fact, this is your best ever time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. So, um, the, as I said, the, the, the day was um, you know, fantastic, beautiful swim in, in Lake Taupo. was glass. Uh, and then on the bike, you know, there was just no wind at all. And, I mean, we had uh, a little bit of fog out at Rekorai, so that, that showed you that there was just no wind lying around. And, um, you know, you, you can just have the... the tiniest bit of wind and you know you, you put that over 180 k's and it really takes a toll on its athletes but um yeah the weather conditions were just sensational and then again the run wasn't too hot um probably still around 25 degrees but um pretty pretty good run, uh, running conditions for a marathon yeah so you do all of that then you finish with a marathon are you the oldest person ever to win a professional ironman event other than obviously age grade events yes yep 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 no, in, i am so yep in the world ever Yep, yep, yep. So I keep pushing the barrier. So uh, I'll uh, keep keep trying as long as I can. So you know, it's, uh, there ain't too many uh, guys at my age still hanging around. There's uh, oh, Craig Alexandra from Australia. He um, he's a year younger. He's still going, but he's sort of just doing the half Ironman. So he's um, yeah, he, he might uh, try and have a shot at the title <laughs> and, and, and and do another Ironman. What what's the secret? How hard do you train? Uh, oh, you train. 30, 35 hours a week. And, you know, it's, full, it's been my full-time job for since I left school 25 you know, years ago. So um, wow. you do the training, but then it's your business as well. You know, trying to your, your sponsorship and uh, trying to um, you know organise that and uh, and then family after that. So um, yeah, it's, it is a busy, busy schedule. But um, I think you know if I don't have that passion and uh, love for it, I wouldn't be doing it, and uh, it's still very, very strong at the moment. Your fastest ever time, the oldest ever winner in the history of the event, uh, a New Zealand, a new record. How did you celebrate last night? Oh, we had the awards last night, uh, so that happens because uh, you know the event doesn't finish until midnight. So you know there's another 1,400 athletes out there. So um, yeah, we had a great night last night at the awards and. Um, but you, you, you just too buggered, really, to, to go out and celebrate. <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. I just got home talking today, and uh, there'll be just some some sleepings this week and a week off, and just relax. And I mean, I can't even walk downstairs properly at the moment. It's just one step at a time. So the um, you actually get worse. Probably 48 hours to 72 hours after the race is probably the worst time that your your legs feel. But hopefully by Wednesday, I'll, I'll be nearly back to normal. It's Cameron Brown talking to John Campbell. And that's extra time for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.